Um, before I start, I would also like to echo what Jess said. I love Tim Keller and he was like so formative in um, me like establishing my faith. And I remember just like when I first kind of became a Christian, I read his book called The Reason for God. And it was just like so wonderful, honestly. And if anyone wants to like um, read one of his articles that he wrote recently. So he got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and he wrote this beautiful article called On Death. It's called On Death by Tim Keller. And he speaks like so transparently about what it was like grappling with the idea that even a faith-filled man was still scared of dying and he was still scared of sickness. And that still created like this like doubt and worry and anxiety in him. But he just words it in the most like profound way that if you are or you know someone who's struggling with that kind of thing, the inevitability of death is unavoidable, obviously. So um, that kind of stuff will come out, but it's it's easy to shy away from those hard conversations and those hard realities. But his article just like um, puts it in the most beautiful way that I would really recommend. Um, if you have someone facing like terminal illness or something like that, I'd really recommend reading that article because it was just like the most wonderful thing, truly. Um, but like Jess said, I am starting a new series or a new part of this series. And we are talking about the person of Jesus. So all of these will have different titles, but I'm talking about um, Jesus as the friend of sinners. And this is a mark of Christianity and a mark of Jesus that does just hold so much beauty because for um, all of the outside suppositions about what Christianity is and all of these ideas of who Jesus is, you don't often get talked about um, by outsiders, that he is a friend of sinners and those who have been marginalized and exiled. And even though in the Bible, the phrase is only actually said one time, like in two separate gospels, but this one account of Jesus saying it, the that like nickname or that phrase or that title has like stuck just because it's so true. He, Tim Keller actually wrote, there you go, in his book, King's Cross, he said, Jesus didn't run from the sinners, he ran to them, he embraced them and he ate with them. And so this kind of phrase is found um, when he's talking to people in the city of Galilee and Matthew and Luke both record it in their accounts of the gospel. Um, but they both follow the statement with two totally different stories. And that's what I want to look at today. So I'll read you the first verse. And then I want to look at the story that Matthew follows it with and then the story that Luke follows it with. So we can get a bit of a deeper understanding about what he's actually talking about. So he shares the verse both um, in Matthew 11 and Luke 7. And so he's talking about um, the people's perception of John the Baptist and of Jesus. And he just says, how can I account for the people of this generation? They're like spoiled children complaining to their parents. We wanted to skip rope and you were always too tired. We wanted to talk, but you were always too busy. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he has a demon. And the son of God came eating and drinking. And they say, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of, of tax collectors and sinners but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. So he's really saying here, like you people didn't want John because he was fasting. You didn't want me because you're feasting. Like you don't even know what you want from God at this time. And um, this story and this phrase, although like, like all through the Bible, there are stories of Jesus sitting with and listening to and being friends with these people who were marginalized, the sinners, the drunks, the drunkard, the tax collectors, people who had been exiled from society and like rightfully accused of doing the wrong thing. And the temptation around this is to preach from a scripture like this and say like, you know, how we can be better friends to sinners and 
you know, so much of the online resource is around that too. Like, I, like when you look it up, it's like three ways you can be friends to sinners and types of sinners that you should be trying to be friends with. And this, like, honestly is something that I feel passionate about and I feel passionate that it should be an expression of Christianity, that we are friends with people who are marginalised, people who are vulnerable, people who are misunderstood by society. I do think that's a mark of the church that we should be we should be known by. But I think that... There are two fundamental problems with thinking that this is the main call to action from these scriptures. Firstly, it supposes that we are not sinful, that we're the ones who get to be friends with the sinners because we're up here. And secondly, it puts ourselves into a position of judgment and into the seat of righteousness instead of Jesus. And so I feel like it's a really important thing to be able to look at the person of Jesus and he being the friend of sinners. And I want to, like I said, I just want to look at those two separate teachings that Jesus um, brings up immediately after this verse that kind of like expands those warnings a bit more. And we're going to start with Luke, so uh, with Matthew. And so in Matthew 11, it goes on to say, this is from verse 20. It says, Then Jesus began to denounce the towns where he had done so many of his miracles, because they, haven't, because they hadn't repented of their sins and turned to God. What sorrow awaits you, Chorazin and Bethsaida? For if the miracles I did, on, did in you had been done in the wicked towns of Tyre and Sidon, their people would have repented of their sins long ago, clothing themselves in burlap and throwing ashes on their head to show their remorse. I tell you, Tyre and Sidon would be better off on judgment day than you. And you people of Capernaum, will you be honoured in heaven? No, you will go down to the place of the dead, for if the miracles I did for you had been done in Wiccan Sodom, it it would still be here today. I tell you, even Sodom will be better off on judgment day than you. And then it goes into a prayer of thanksgiving. Jesus prayed this prayer. He said, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever and for revealing themselves and for revealing them to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. And I'll be the first one to admit that passages like this that speak of all the towns and all of the different things that aren't familiar with our modern day terms, it's easy to just like gloss over them and read and because the um, truth of it or the revelation doesn't like instantly jump out at us and we need to like dig a little deeper. So stay with me here. I I can also have that same um, obstruction of just being like, what do you even mean? But what we see here is Jesus rebuking entire towns of people where he had spent the most time and performed the most miracles. And then he goes on to compare them to, to these towns like Tyre and Sidon, who had been considered and spoken about throughout the Bible since the time of Genesis as wicked. And so he says, when, when it comes down to it, they will actually be better off on Judgment Day. And like God has stirred my heart so much around this passage because it's it offers like really deep conversation of like there's different levels of judgment and there's different things to consider and stuff like that, which we'll park for now. But I just feel like um, what we see here can come across as kind of like heavy handed of Jesus, you know. But he's really showing us that the way into the kingdom of heaven and into a friendship with Jesus is not about the miracles that we've seen or the time that we've spent in holy places, but it's about repenting from our sinful ways and turning back to that person of Jesus. It was him, it was that Jesus who was like in the trenches of the world as a man. And he saw, and he says in that prayer that he was glad that God had chosen the unlikely. 
He knew that God's church was never going to be in the hands of those who considered themselves to be righteous because of what they had seen and because of like how much time they'd spent there. But instead, God had entrusted it to the people who were marked with faith to believe, humility to repent, and um, the, the inclination to follow the person of Jesus and not just stay where they were and just be like, yeah, I've seen God show up before, so I'm just going to stay and do it. Instead, he says, these sinful ones, if they had the same opportunities as you, and if they had seen me move in those ways, they would turn. They wouldn't get destroyed. They would do so much more with those opportunities than you have done. And I feel like as a church and as a Christian, there is so much to learn from those things that it's not about our miracle scoreboard and it's not about seeing people get healed. It's about following the person of Jesus, never staying still, never staying stagnant, but moving as he leads us. And then Luke's preceding story is completely different, but there is still so much to learn there. And so Straight after he says, like, you don't like John, you don't like me, you think that he's like a demon and you think that I am just like a drunkard and a friend of sinners. But he goes on to say this story. It's in Luke 7, 36 to 50. It's a chunk. But I said it to Cam and he was like, 36 to 50? And I was like, sorry, but it's a good one. It's the word of God. So he says this story. One of the Pharisees, his name was Simon, asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. What an honour, firstly. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. And then she knelt behind him as at his feet weeping. Her tears fell on his feet and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept, then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. And I feel... Um, like if you're thinking about this and thinking, well, why was she in there? It was like really common for, um, for people to have dinners and invite these guests of honour. And then people in the city were allowed to come into that room and sit like against the wall. And because often the conversation was so profound and so um, informative that people were like welcomed in to be able to just like sit quietly and hear it. And also, if you had the same thought as me of like how is he sitting down and she's behind him kissing his feet like how does that work logistically what's happening here I actually had to look it up and just as a point of interest it's not it's not essential to the thing but they kind of like recline like this the tables here and they kind of recline like this right so you can be behind someone touching the feet but you know not obstruct like you're not on the dinner table kind of thing and so it's all legit guys it's legit Anyway, so when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She is a sinner. And then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Simon replied, go ahead, teacher. And then Jesus told him this story. He said, a man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, cancelling their debts. Who do you suppose loved, loved him more after that debt? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he cancelled the larger debt? That's right, Jesus said. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling her, kneeling here. I tell you, her sins, they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me so much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only a little love. 
And then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. And the men at the table said amongst themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And I love this story for so many reasons. But here we see that Jesus' love for this woman is so disruptive. It is unconventional and it is radical. And I can't help but wonder how Simon, who was hosting Jesus, I can't imagine how he found this night to be. He had invited Jesus in and not out of hostility, but instead, like I imagine it would have have been like with an honest curiosity to see him and to learn more and to know him. But Simon was someone who had spent his entire life just following the rules and keeping the law. And then he sees Jesus come in and pulls an act like this. I feel like that understandably leaves him grumbling and murmuring because he couldn't align with and he didn't understand that kind of behavior. And I, I felt so strongly during worship today and when we were praying that we like that our faith should never be planted in what we can see, but is an assurance of the things that we cannot see and how much we, we rest on our own understanding of what God is doing in movements. And we rest on our own understanding of a hierarchy of sin. And we pass that judgment and we can even obstruct Jesus from doing his work by thinking that we're in that seat of righteousness. I love that Simon says, if he really knew this woman, and then Jesus says straight after, do you see this woman? Because the Pharisees saw the woman as she had been and with the eyes to see. She had been a notorious sinner, one who was known by the community, but he could not see, like he did not use the assurance of things unseen. And that is our faith in Jesus that says she was, a, she was that, but she is a humble sinner seeking forgiveness and she was pouring her love out to Jesus. And so tr- like truly being aligned with this person of Jesus we learn so much from the sinning lady that um, it means that we're not striving for our own version of justice and our own version of Christianity, but we yield to the unrelenting forgiveness of a God who in his word, in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. And we see this outworked in this story from Jesus himself. He said, the old perception of her isn't it anymore. There's a new perception and it has come. All this from God in verse 18 says, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We have the ministry of reconciliation. In verse 19, it says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And of all of the works Jesus did in this chapter of Luke, This one was the greatest and it doesn't feel like just like forgiveness might be the greatest because in this chapter we see him heal the sick, we see him restore life, but they are not permanent works of healing. Like they're not permanent works of healing because those same bodies that were restored, those same sicknesses that were healed, though they are a miracle, those same bodies will one day die again. And that is God, like that is just the reality. But sins that are forgiven are forgiven forever. And that should blow our mind. And we should have our faith totally challenged by that. That it's not the things that we can see, the beautiful healing and the life restored. Though God is so merciful in giving that, they are temporary things. And this life is but a breath, the Bible says. But the sins that are forgiven are forgiven forever. And Dr. G.C. Morgan says this, He said, it's not easy for us to blot out a past. 
and to free ourselves from all the prejudice resulting from our knowledge of that past, which can so quickly hold us back. Yet that is exactly what the Lord does. And he does so not unrighteously, but righteously. He knows the power of his own grace and that it completely cancels the past and gives its own beauty to the soul. And these two messages like tucked inside these scriptures, both lead with Jesus being a friend of sinners and then they go on to warn us that we are also sinners because Romans 5 says that sinners are just people who fall short of the glory of God. And I think that if we actually search inward, we think pretty quickly, oh yeah, that is me actually. I do fall short of the glory of God. So we are also sinners. And secondly, that Jesus is in the seat of judgment. And we shouldn't obstruct that. We shouldn't micromanage that. We shouldn't try and fit that into our own boxes or our own perception or our own worldview because he is above and beyond all of that things. And when Jesus says that he's a friend of sinners, we are so lucky. We are truly blessed. We should be outpouring with thanksgiving to be included in that. But there is another place where we see Jesus use this same word friend here. And it is in the Gospel of John. It's in, Gospel, it's in John 15 and it starts like this. Greater love has no one than this, to lay, one, to lay, down, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know what his master's business is. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. And this is my command. Love each other. And so here Jesus is emphasizing the connection between a person's obedience to his teachings and the legitimacy of their relationship to him. His point is that is not that we must somehow like earn salvation through these good deeds, but rather that he makes the point that those who truly love and honor him will naturally and normally seek to follow his teachings. Jesus is like is preparing the disciples for his impending arrest and death. You know, speaking quite literally about like, there's no greater love than to lay one's life down for one's friend. But there's additional applications to this teaching because he's indicating that his intended relationships with believers involves way more than just simple dictatorship. Yelling out laws, here's a command, here's this, don't do that. Don't even think about doing that. Make sure you do this, this and this and this. But instead, it is a relationship. It is a friendship. It requires communication and support. And Jesus speaks on love, on friendship, on trust, on collaboration and fruitfulness. And as God's love and knowledge flows straight to Christ, Christ passes it down to us as a vine passes life along to its branches. And we in turn are meant to pass on the word and that love to other people. The ultimate act of love, of course, is to willingly offer one's life. And for Christ to have made such an offer to sinful people is like indescribably merciful. But for us, it doesn't mean literally dying. It means that our call as Christians is to abide in Him. Let go of our own suppositions, our own judgment, our own idea of what it should look like and yield ourselves and abide in Christ, which includes emulating His love. We love because he first loves us. This is from 1 John. It says, Whoever claims to love God yet hate a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen 
cannot love God whom they have not seen. And again, that touches to don't trust what you can see with your eyes, but instead you need to like harness the faith and make that a part of your worldview and a part of your expression of devotion to a friend in Jesus. And so if the band wants to come back up, to the person hearing this today, who like the sinful woman might hear the voices of others, whether they are internal, shame, embarrassment, humiliation, a strong recollection of the things you have done, or maybe it is external because you actually have been rightly accused of doing the wrong thing. If those voices are casting judgment and saying, if Jesus actually were a prophet and he actually was this holy God that we're talking about, he wouldn't, be, he wouldn't be coming near you. He wouldn't be touching you. He would know of what kind of person is touching him and they are a sinner. But the Lord says that if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone and the new is here. If religion or people has obstructed that, the good news of the gospel is that there is a person of Jesus, not a set of rules, not religiosity, not a history of a holy place that has seen the miracles of God, but a person of Jesus. And He already counts you as a friend. He says, look at this woman kneeling here. Look at this man sitting here. Look at this lady here. I tell you, their sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. And that is the offer that is still available through us through the mercy of a God who is friend, who is both man, He is God, He is merciful, and He is kind. And to the Christian who has found themselves separated from the vine, maybe your love for God or your love for other people has become conditional. Or maybe you've fostered a sense of righteousness that has formed over you that even like the cities of Corazon and Bethsaida, you have seen miracles in your lifetime. You've seen healings. You see God be good. You know the words to say and the the way to walk. But you were once a wonderful host of God's Spirit. And you were once a deep believer of Jesus, but your heart has hardened. And the burden of loving others, whether that's difficult people in your life, or whether that is other believers, or whether that is the church across the nation, if that's become a heavy burden to bear, may I offer you the same warnings as the city got. Not just an encouragement, but a warning that sorrow awaits you on that path. It's a heavy burden to bear to try and love people from your own might and your own will. And it's hard to try and keep the commands of Jesus to love others. But Acts 3.19 says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. It means to acknowledge your way is wrong. This, that word repenting means to acknowledge your way is wrong and God's way is right. And it's a complete change in the view of your world. Jesus says that His yoke is easy and His burden is light and He wants to journey with you as a friend. And the expression of that should be loving others with mercy and grace and also to be loved ourselves as friends. And I think that the songs that we sung this morning are like just so perfect for that, that we wanna build our lives not on what we see, but we wanna live our lives with an assurance of the unseen. We wanna have our faith planted in a God who is a friend and be marveled at the beauty of Jesus to be filled with His Holy Spirit that equips us perfectly to love those around us. And so as we close, um, I wanna read this like little quote um, from Spurgeon about the lady who had her sins forgiven. 
And he says this, her service to Jesus was personal. She did it all herself and all to Him. Do you notice how many times the pronoun occurs in our text? She three times and her twice in Luke. She served Christ Himself. It was neither service to Peter, nor James, nor John, nor, nor yet to the poor or sick of the city, but to the Master Himself and depend on it. When our love is in active exercise, we will be turned immediately towards Christ. We shall sing to Him, pray to Him, teach for Him, preach for Him and live for Him. And may that be the truth for us. As we go out, we are marked by the true love of God, that we would love God that we would love God, that we would love our neighbour and we would indeed allow ourselves to be loved. And so let me pray for you and, we'll be, and we will finish by worshipping and declaring the holiness of our good God who came down as a man. Lord, I pray for every person in here, God, that we may have hearts that are turned towards you and whether that is for the first time as identified sinners, Lord, I pray you would receive us as you did the woman at the dinner that You would say our sins are forgiven as we repent and turn from our ways and You would give us new identities and we would be able to walk in the marvel that we are new creations, Lord. And I pray for those in the room who have seen Your miracles, who have spent time in holy places, who might have been going to church their whole life and yet their hearts are hardened towards others, that we've been resting on our own understanding and we've been making our own judgments and our own... um, in like decisions about that, about who is and isn't worthy, God. I pray that You would break that shell around our heart, that the person of Jesus would be revealed to us, that a new revelation of mercy would just pour out and we could be vessels that would just change our communities with love that doesn't suppose righteousness, that doesn't discriminate against the marginalised, that doesn't think that we are on a high and mighty throne, but instead reveres the one who is who was humble enough to send His only Son to die for us, to lay His life down for us and to call us friends. There is no greater love than that, Lord. I pray that we would be on the receiving end of that today and that that would drive us to be on the giving end, Lord. I pray that as we marvel at Your person and we declare Your holiness, that You would transform us and restore us and heal us in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.